If you would, would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews in chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 1. Our text will be verses 4 through 14. Hebrews 1, 4 through 14. Last week, we concluded the first four verses. We're going to be starting in, as a bouncing off point, verse 4, which was introduced last Sunday. And as we look at this first four verses here, which is you could consider a prologue to the rest of the entire book of the Hebrews, we saw what clearly came out is that Christ is both our priest, our king, and our prophet. And last week, we we really looked in on the fact that he is our priest. In verse 3, it says, after making purification for sins, that he is our king. He sat down at the right hand on the majesty on high. And verse 4, I said this is where he we see an introduction or a restatement of the fact that Christ is our final prophet, where we read in verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And after the sermon, I got many um, questions about that. And because I didn't just get one question from one person, but from several, several, uh, I, I realized that this needed to be addressed again because I probably did not cover it um, adequately enough to make sense of why verse 4 is a statement of Christ's prophetic nature. You see that... The whole point of verse 4 is to introduce that Christ is superior to angels. He continues, the author continues to make that argument all the way through chapter 1. Then he makes a statement, therefore let us not neglect this great salvation in chapter 2, and continues to make the same argument that Christ is superior to that of the angels. And now, the reason this case is made is because, and the introduction of angels, is because of the role of angels that they played in God's covenant with Moses. You see in chapter 2, verse 2, where it says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, so you see that idea of a message that was proclaimed by angels, and then if you look over in Galatians, in chapter 3, verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promises had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So the revelation of the Mosaic covenant was prophetic in the sense that it was the revealing of God's will for Israel as a nation. And Christ, he reveals or fulfills that covenant and ushers in a new covenant by way of his prophetic voice. He is the final prophet, and this is why in verse 2, it says, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And so Christ is the final prophet. 
And the whole point of this then becomes to show that he is superior to angels who did mediate that covenant with Moses. Now, it shouldn't be hard to imagine why this point needs to be made. There's a fascination of angels to this day. There certainly was then, and they were seen in the sense that they had brought in this covenant, so they were elevated in their status. And so the author is making the point, no, Christ is superior to angels. And as you go through the book of Hebrews, the next point is he's superior to Moses. Then the next point, he is superior to the high priesthood. He brings in a better and a new covenant. Now, to make such statements as the author of Hebrews makes, he doesn't just make these statements by himself, but he calls in a witness. And this witness is God himself. And that's what we're going to deal with, is God's own witness to the Son as being superior And we hear this beginning in verse 5. So let us hear the word of God. Beginning in Hebrews 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you... Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all? ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. This is the reading of God's word, and may he bless the reading of it. Do you notice verse 5? It begins with a rhetorical question that requires an answer of never. For to which of the angels did God ever say these things to? Well, he never said these things of angels. These things that are said by God are unique to the person of Jesus. And to him alone is it ever said that you are my son, today I have begotten you. He never said these things of angels. But the whole point is this, God did say these things to, of the son, And when did he say these things of the Son? He says these things of the Son before the Son is brought forth into the world. So God comes forth as a witness to testify to the Son by his own word. That is the Old Testament. How do we understand the Old Testament? Well, we understand it by Jesus. It's pointing 
forward to Christ. And that is exactly why God is the witness to His Son. Now you notice this first quotation, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. That is from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 7, which is a messianic psalm. The whole psalm is about Christ. In fact, it's quoted uh, in the early church in in Acts chapter 4. Why do the nations rage? Why do the nations plot against his anointed one? And then the apostles said that that was fulfilled at the crucifixion of Christ. That was them quoting Psalm 2 to make sense of the crucifixion. So the apostles made sense of the person of Christ and his work according to the Old Testament. So which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? He he never said that of an angel. And Christ is the Son of God. Now there's a lot of ink spilt by, What does it mean to say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Then the argument goes like this about trying to determine, is this speaking of the eternal generation of the Son, that He is the eternally begotten Son of God, or is this speaking of His incarnation, that is, when He becomes man? Well, there's a couple of things that we have to answer from Scripture and let Scripture tell us is all of those things are true. In fact, He is declared Son in eternity. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. And that's referring there to the what we would call eternal generation of the Son. The Son does not become Son at birth when He becomes a man. The Son is always the Son, is the second person of the Godhead, of our triune God. The Son was eternally begotten as Son. And He's declared so here in Galatians. But it's also true that He is declared Son when He's born and takes on human flesh. In Luke chapter 1, in verse 35, We read this, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the Lord Jesus is called the Son at His birth. But He's also called the Son at His baptism. In Luke chapter 3, verse 22, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus is also declared Son at his transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. In verse 35, in reading of this transfiguration, it says, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And so we see in various places where Scripture attests to the fact that Jesus is the eternal son of God, that he is declared son in his birth, he is declared son at his baptism, he's declared son at the transfiguration. But I want you to notice in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, the word today. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
And if that word there wasn't, to, to, if the word today was not there, I would say this is clearly referring to the fact that he is the eternal begotten Son of God. But the word today is following verse 4, which says that he has inherited a name that is more excellent than theirs. So this is referring to something after his birth. This is referring to something other than his eternal generation. This is referring to the fact that he is declared son in his coronation of kingship after the cross. In fact... The whole entire context of him being superior to angels is showing that he is superior to angels because of the fact that he sat down at the majesty of on high, that he is king. You see in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That is Christ for a little while was lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so the reference and the whole point is this, is that Christ is king and in his coronation as king he is declared son. That is, he has inherited something greater in, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says something similar in 3 through 4. It says, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The whole point is this, that the author is making, because Christ sat down as king, the Father declares him as Son who inherits all things. As John Owen said, that declaration to be made in his resurrection and exaltation overall. So the proclamation by God the Father is, today this is my Son who reigns as King. Now there's two things that you ought to notice of this. He is superior as son and that he has accomplished his mission, which is his mission of salvation and saving his people has been accomplished because the father declares him king. And then there's another point that you have to take note of, and that is this, is Jesus right now is ruling as king. Jesus right now is our sovereign ruler. Jesus at this moment is king of all that exists. He goes on to make the point. This time quoting from 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, where he's asking the question, which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son? Again, this is quoted from 2 Samuel chapter 7 in verse 14. And that was, if you remember the context of 2 Samuel, David wanted to build a temple. And the prophet Nathan said, okay, go ahead and build a temple. God blesses that. Then right away, Nathan says, don't build a temple. And at that point, God makes this promise to David that he will have an eternal throne, that from him, from his line, there will come one that will reign forever. 
and it will be his son. So Christ is the Davidic king that inherits the world, and through him, through this Davidic king, all nations will be blessed. And here's where we see the Old Testament tied together in that statement. Christ is the fulfillment of all of the covenant promises given to Israel. What was the promise to Abraham? What was the promises to Moses? The promises to David? They are realized in Christ, but there's a progression. Abraham was promised land. Abraham was promised that through him, his descendants would fill the earth. Abraham was was promised that kings would come from him. And how were those promises to Abraham kept? It's kept through the law of Moses that God later gives in the Mosaic Covenant. And after the time of Moses, there's a period of of brief, uh, you would say, success in Israel with Joshua. As Israelites conquer the promised land, and that land is fulfilled. The Abrahamic promise of land is fulfilled in Joshua's time. But then after Joshua dies, what happens in Israel's history? Well, you come into this period of the time of the Judges. And one theme that happens over and over in the book of Judges, it says, there was no king in that day, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I'm going to tell you how to understand the book of Judges. It's very simple. It's just this downward spiral. That's the book of Judges. That's it summarized. And it starts with the statement, there was no king in those days. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the book of Judges closes with that. There was no king in those days, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so it's in that environment that God brings forth a king that will enforce his law. But before God brings forth his man, what is it that the people want? The people want a king that will go out and fight their battles like the other nations. They want a a king not that God has chosen, but they want a king that's that's taller and good-looking and will go out and conquer their battles for them. And... Samuel, who is going to anoint this king, says, you're making a big mistake. And that was, the, that was Saul, the first king of Israel. He was not God's chosen man to be on the throne. David was. And we see this is that with David, as one theologian says, the kingship of Israel is not founded on the people's desire to free themselves from God, as with Saul, but on God's commitment to establish the throne of David. Why did God choose David? Because through David would come Jesus. Christ fulfills this covenant promises as the son of David and as the son of God. And so when we see this phrase in, from 2 Samuel, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. If you read that initially before the coming of the Messiah, you would say, well, that's speaking of Solomon. But it can't be of Solomon because it speaks of an eternal throne. So they were looking forward for someone else. That someone else is the Lord Jesus. Now I want you to notice the implications of this. And the implications are pretty much the rest of this chapter. 
And the first implication is this, is that angels worship Him. He is superior to them. He does not worship angels, but they worship Him. Look at verse 6. And again, when He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, let all God's angels worship Him. Now, there's a lot of debate of where this comes from, but most believe this is from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, or it could be Psalm 97, verse 7, because they virtually say the same thing. But there's something I want us to notice about this, is it says that the angels worship the Son, they worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of this. But if you go back and look at Deuteronomy 32, if you go back and look at Psalm 97, it's addressed to Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Psalm 97 is addressed to Yahweh. Psalm 32 is addressed to Yahweh. He is identified in those as Yahweh. If you look in your Bibles, the English translation, and you see the word Lord, and it's all in large capitals, that's telling us that that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And what does this verse here apply to the Lord Jesus Christ? It applies to Him, that covenant name of God, the personal name of God, to Jesus. God revealed Himself to His people as Yahweh. God has revealed Himself to His people for the purpose of relationship with His people. He is Jesus, that final revelation of God to mankind, and thus the angels worship Him. But there's another implication, and that is this, the angels serve Him. Look at verse 7. It says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And this is quoting Psalm 104, verse 4. And here you see nature itself is personified to show how the angels serve God just as nature serves God's purposes. Whereas the Son rules, the angels serve. We see that Jesus sat down at the right hand of majesty. We see that he is the heir of all things. We see that he has inherited a more excellent name. That is, that he has inherited the name Son. Angels actually serve his purposes and not the other way around. Now, we might find it strange, this whole focus in on angels and that Jesus is superior to angels, but we we shouldn't just fly past this because that might not seem relevant because I actually think it's, it's very relevant to us today and the idea of angels. Angels are real. Angels are absolutely real. But I think people attach superstitious value on angels to the detriment of Christ's sovereign rule. In fact, when you look at Colossians, you see this was a problem in the church of Colossae in chapter 2 of Colossians, we see in verse 18, it says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. That was clearly an issue that took place in the early churches, that there would be a worship of angels. And we see that in Scripture, we're told that angels are ministering spirits, but we have very little description of them and what they do. 
But there's a fascination with angels, isn't there? You oftentimes hear people talk about, well, my guardian angel is looking over me and protecting me. And there's this idea of comfort and angelic activity. And certainly, Scripture affirms that they are ministering spirits. And so we should not discount that. We should not disqualify it. But it, it, very little is told about that in Scripture. And so often the superstitious view of angels comes around as if we find comfort in them rather than in the Lord Jesus Christ who is ruling and they serve His purposes. Our comfort isn't in angels. Our comfort is in the Lord Jesus Christ. To which of the angels did God ever say, this is my son, today I have begotten you? None. None of them. And so while we value what Scripture teaches us about them, and we're thankful, they actually serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and they worship the Lord Jesus Christ, and when there has been angelic appearances, and someone bows before the angel, what does the angel do? They're horrified, and say, don't worship me, I'm a ministering servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our comfort doesn't come from the angelic world. Our comfort is in Jesus. He doesn't stop here, though. He goes on to say of the Son in verse 8, speaking of the fact that Christ is King. And I want us to focus here in verses 8 through 9, which is quoted from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the first statement of Christ here is that he is eternal. What do we know of angels? They are created. They are created beings. They are created by God. They are created by God through the Son. They are held together by the Son. But Christ is eternal. Christ is the one who brings them into being. And you see here that his throne is forever and ever. That is that the rule of the Son is an eternal ruling. And this is speaking of His kingship. And it's also speaking of His kingdom. So two things. It means that Christ is always king, will forever be king, and His kingdom is also eternal. What do we experience How many of us enjoy watching the History Channel and watching ancient civilizations? And what do we see of ancient civilizations? Is they rise and they fall. A couple hundred years is about all they're given. And then they fall. That's about it. We see nations come and we see nations go. But what do we have promised here? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. His kingdom is eternal. In Christ, we have an eternal kingdom, and that eternal kingdom is given to his people as an inheritance. Only one kingdom is given eternal status. Christ inherits it, and if you are in Christ, guess what? It's yours as well. It is of yours as well. This has tremendous implications for us, and that is this. We are looking forward to that kingdom. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, it speaks of Abraham. It says, For he was looking forward to the city 
that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. You know the amazing thing about that statement, speaking of Abraham? Abraham was the one of the most wealthiest men in the entire earth when he lived. Abraham was incredibly wealthy. I think in, in terms of, we think of the wealthiest people in the world today, you think of Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or someone like that. Abraham was of that status. He was incredibly wealthy. He could hire his own army. What do we read of Abraham, though? Did Abraham set up a palace of earthly glory? Did Abraham establish himself here? No. He lived in a tent as a nomad, always following the direction of God. And why is that? Well, he wasn't looking for his foundations here. He was looking forward to that eternal kingdom that he was promised. Abraham is in many ways, as Hebrews makes the point in that that Hall of Faith chapter, Hebrews 11, is our example. But just reflect on this for one moment. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Only an eternal God can have an eternal kingdom, but he has an eternal kingdom. What a great king we have. What a marvelous king we have. And so let us, let us live for him. And I will say this, it's not something that we can do by, on our own, but it is only by his, his grace. And when we consider this implication that his kingdom is forever, and what we experience here is fading and will fall apart, I have to ask, what is it that we're living for? Let me ask you, what is it that you're living for. Consider what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. That's what we experience. We experience things that destroy, are destroyed and, and, and lose value, that rust. That's what we experience. That's what this world has to offer us is that which is just going to perish. It's going to, it's going to go away. And so Jesus tells us, that don't lay up your treasures here. He says, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, an eternal king has an eternal kingdom that will never perish. You don't ever have to worry about things being destroyed in eternity with Christ because He's eternal and His kingdom is eternal. Jesus tells us very simply, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? There's not enough treasure in this world that comes even close to the infinite value of the eternal kingdom of Christ. What are we living for? Are we living for those perishing kingdoms that rise and fall? Are we trying to build our own kingdoms? Or are we resting in our king who has an eternal kingdom waiting for us? Where is our hope this morning?
it doesn't stop just there about this, but we see also of not only an eternal kingdom, but in the next phrase of the verse, we see that his kingdom is ruled with absolute justice. It says, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Our king's kingdom is a kingdom of justice and righteousness. Our king is perfectly holy. Our king is perfectly just. He cannot be bribed. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be coerced. He cannot be open to some sort of fault or accusation. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He is exalted above the heavens as our reigning king right now. And he is unstained. He is holy. He is perfectly innocent without sin. And he, as absolute sovereign God, rules with absolute justice. Not like earthly rulers, right? What do we experience with earthly rulers? It doesn't matter if, if it's a king or a president or someone that serves on a, a city council. We experience, we witness in our whole entire existence that leaders are corrupt they can be bribed, they can be manipulated, they can be bought, they, they are evil, they embrace wickedness for the accomplishment of their own ends. That's what we experience. But Christ is holy. His scepter of His kingdom is righteousness. And He rules with perfect justice. I'm going to ask a rhetorical question because I know the answer. Are you concerned with the state of the world and the rulers over us right now? You are. I know you are. We're experiencing people's savings accounts are diminishing because of inflation and bad economic policies. We see all of these things that are affecting us right now. You feel that. You live it. We all know that. And we can pinpoint it to this, is that they're sinful leaders. And that's not, by the way, me trying to make a political statement. It's just what is. So are you concerned with rulers over us, regardless of whatever your political ideology is? Yeah, you are. Because you're facing it right now. But there's something we need to know, is that what Scripture tells us is this, is let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. They are instituted by God because there is a sovereign king that is actually ruling over them. And we are told later on, is that in verse 4, that these rulers are servants of God, and that word servant is the same word from which we get deacon. They are God's deacons. They are God's servants. And guess what? Because our king rules with absolute righteousness and justice, they will be held accountable for how they ruled 
and for how they instituted or how they perverted justice. There's great comfort in knowing our king is just and perfect because it means every wicked ruler will one day stand before God and give an account for how they administered justice. And God will hold them accountable. There's coming a day where all rulers... All rulers included will be brought to a level playing field and they will stand before Christ. And he will judge them according to his own righteousness. And what did we see? It's holy. It's perfect. It's it's separated. It's unstained. He is innocent. He will judge them according to his own standard, which is perfection. And Christ is lawgiver means that he will execute that law that he has given and he will execute it and administer it and enforce it justly. Now the wonder of these statements and the wonder of our king, and I want you to just reflect on this with me for a second, the wonder of this king that we read of, the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that he accomplishes his own law through perfect obedience to the law on behalf of his people because we fall short of fulfilling that law ourselves. Think about it. This king that is perfect, that gives a just rule, that is lawgiver, he gives a law for not only rulers to obey, but a law for you and I to obey. And what do we know about our ability to keep that law? Can't do it. We failed. I've already failed this morning. Not only that, we're born with the imputed sin of Adam. And then we sin because we're sinners. But this king, recognizing that we cannot fulfill that righteous demand, he stands in our place and fulfills it for us. So that those that stand in him by faith are considered to be righteous, holy, unstained, set apart, and innocent. The very attributes that the King Jesus has for himself, that he achieved in himself, are the very attributes that he gives to those people that follow him. Let that sink in. That's what our King does for us. Is he rules perfectly. And so, friends, you either stand in this king by faith or you await his perfect justice. He either paid for your sins or you will pay for it. There's something else that goes on to say in verse 9, is he is anointed. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is, again, quoted from Psalm 45. 
And you'll notice that in the psalm it says, Your throne, O God. And then in verse 9, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. This is addressing the Lord Jesus Christ in this psalm as not only king, but that as he is also God. And I just want you to notice a couple of things. Is that this confirms what he has already said in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Here the Son is called and declared to be God. In verse 6 and 7, he is declared to be Yahweh. Here he is called God, and that is that he is the one who is self-existent, eternal king. But I want you to notice what it says at the end of verse 9. Focus in on one word, and it's this word, companion. The eternal sovereign king that rules over all things calls you his companion. He calls you companion. Jesus condescends to be able to call us his companion. When you see, look at this word companion, you only find it in Hebrews and in Luke, and it's translated as share or partner or participation or here companion. And it means an associate or a partner. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ calls you. If you're in Christ, he calls you his his companion. The amazing reality of being a Christian is that Jesus, the eternally begotten Son of God, calls his people companion. But I want you to notice it's qualified. It's not like a companion like we have companions, that we call one another friend, You don't owe allegiance to your friends, and your friends don't owe allegiance to you. But this is stated in the context of a sovereign ruler. Elsewhere, we are told that Jesus is our friend. And look at in John, in chapter 15, in verse 14. Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. How many of you start friendships like that? You'll be my friend if you do what I tell you to do. Well, Jesus can say that because he is eternal, the eternal king of heaven. He is the son of God. He is sovereign king over all. But we we might look at that. He tells us what to do. Well, he can because he's sovereign king. But the sovereign king also calls you what? Friend. The Old Testament says the same thing in Psalm 25. Psalm 25 in verse, 15, in, in, uh, verse 14 says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. That is, His people. God calls friend. By the way, if you look in Psalm 25 verse 14 and you see the all caps there of Lord, it is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, calls His people, those who fear Him, friend. The Lord Jesus not only calls you His companion, He calls you His friend, but He also calls you His brother. 
It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. I can't think of anything more unfathomable and incomprehensible than that, that the creator of the universe calls me his friend. There's nothing more incomprehensible than that. What great condescension of our eternal God. I mean, we see the very revelation of his name, Yahweh, is his choice to enter into relationship with his creation. Not only is that his choice, but also he makes a way for us to be in relationship with him. And it happens through Christ, the eternal Son of God, who became man and raised to glory and now calls us companion. This king is just and he's righteous, which means for those that he calls companion, friend, or brother, it means that also he, his rule over your life is always perfect. Again, his friendship's not like our friendship. I can't run the course and decree from eternity your course of life. But the one who calls you friend has and does. His rule for your life is always perfect. There's, there's two wills of God that we oftentimes see in theology. One's the decretive will. That is that will of God's that we don't, we don't know. I know what God's will for my life uh, was yesterday because it's already happened. But I don't know what God's will for my life is tomorrow. That's God's decretive will. And there's something we have to know about God is that He calls you companion. He calls you friend. And so it's this. It's His, His will for you, it is always for your good even when you experience pain and suffering right now. It's not a baseless claim that He says He calls us friend. His will for your life is always good. He is a true friend. He will always tell you the truth. This is why in Proverbs 27, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Even in trial, we know that our great King and our great Savior is working and acting in regard for your welfare. Because he is sovereign king that calls you companion. Even when you experience pain, you know it comes from a faithful friend. But then we have God's revealed will. And that is this, as he guides you. You are my friends if you do what I command you, Jesus says. He gives you his word. He tells you this is what's right. This is what's holy. This is how to act with justice. He has revealed to you what He wants you to do and how you should go about life. This is why in Psalm 119, verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. He has given you a truthful word as a friend and says, Here, this is what I want from you. This is how you are to live. Would you agree with me that friendship is a precious commodity? Friendship is something that's... True friendship is something hard to come by. Let me ask you, have you you ever faced a broken or painful relationship in your life? 
You ever face that? You take great comfort in the King of the universe, the eternally begotten Son of God, who sovereignly rules over all things, calls you friend. And he's eternal. His friendship never, ever dissipates. It never, ever ends. He is always with you. He is always with his people. When the Lord Jesus was going to go to the cross, he gathered his disciples who were frightened, knowing he was going to go away. And he says this, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That is what the Lord Jesus promises to all that are his own, is that by his spirit, He will always be with His people, which means this, if you're in Christ, you're never alone. That eternal friend, that eternal King is always, always with you, and He will never depart. And this is where we see the wonderful promises of Zephaniah 3.17 realized. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That is a promise of the presence of Christ to be with his people, to rejoice over them, and to comfort them with his love. You are never alone. If you are in Christ. And that love is not motivated by anything in us, but by God's eternal choice. Which means it cannot be broken. It cannot be altered. It is permanent. So did you hear that? It's permanent. If you are in Christ... It is because the Father has given you to His Son, and the Son keeps you, and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and the Son Himself keeps you and calls you a companion. What do we know of our great companion? This is what He says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life. For his friends. That is our eternal reigning king that rules with absolute perfect justice and righteousness. Do you know that king? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these promises that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that our King, the Lord Jesus, accomplished our salvation, whereas we would fail and have felt. We thank you for his shed blood that covers us. And Father, help us by your grace that we would live for this eternal kingdom. I pray, Father, for us that by your grace we would prioritize the Lord Jesus Christ in our life as first and foremost, as He is greater, as your word says, greater than even the angels. And Father, I pray that we would hold these truths in our hearts and reflect upon them often. And if there's anyone, Father, that does not know the Lord Jesus, I pray that you would call them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.